Welcome to the Basilica Conversation Series podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Oftmauer, co-founder and director of Basilica Hudson, a nonprofit multidisciplinary art center housed in a solar-powered reclaimed 1880s industrial factory on the Hudson River in the city of Hudson, New York. I've been an artist and musician my whole life, and after traveling the world for almost two decades, playing bass in the rock bands Hole and the Smashing Pumpkins, then followed by my own solo career, I have now laid down some serious brick and mortar roots, and I'm seeing the world from a super local, place-based perspective here in Hudson. What inspired me to start this conversation series is the desire to listen and to learn, and to inspire and inform. This podcast is an opportunity to connect and converse on the power of arts and culture at the intersection of climate and social advocacy, highlighting people and organizations that reflect and inspire Basilica Hudson's mission to be a platform for independent and innovative voices. Today, our Basilica conversation will be um, with Elizabeth Sobel, President and CEO of Saratoga Performing Arts Center. She has an epic career in classical music, uh, record executive um, label head, uh, and a a talent agent. But in 2016, was invited to become the president of one of the biggest uh, art centers in upstate New York. It covers uh, uh, 2,000 plus acres. I'm very excited to get to know her better. And in conversation with her will be Maureen Sager, who's the executive director of the Upstate Alliance for the Creative Economy. ACE, um, otherwise known as ACE, is dedicated to promoting and growing the creative industries in the eight-county capital region. Um, I've had the pleasure to run in the circle of these two women over the last five or six years as Basilica has been trying to quantify its role in essentially the understanding the role that the arts play in the economy and in shaping our region and the world. Um, I really am looking forward to seeing where this conversation can go. Hello, Maureen and Elizabeth. So great to have a virtual tea with you um, and be able to make up for our lost social serotonin serotonin that have just been, I mean, I guess it's coming back with the spring slowly and vaccinations, slowly a return, but I've been enjoying my making the most of the pandemic by having these um, Zoom intimate uh, public private conversations. So thanks for uh, uh, joining because you're two that I would have loved to have run into at a cultural event in the last year, but instead we will uh, meet here and talk about the future and the past cultural events. Um, any, any, any questions, any comments before I dive into inquisitive inquiries on both of you? <laughs> no, but my serotonin is back. My, my, my vibes coming back. So hopefully yeah. I won't be too dorky. I was pretty awkward. Was just starting conversations and heading out. I was so, feeling so dorky all the time. So there's, I highly I recommend there's a Saturday night live. Elon Musk uh, hosted Saturday night live and there was a COVID party skit, which is the awkward. How was your lockdown? And then you hear the inside voices. <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's going to be a, a cool in some ways um teenage awkward moment for and and in very profound ways 
uh, a real wake-up call system reboot that we all needed and that the world certainly should be humbled by because um and that's you know really what uh, these conversations have been an opportunity for me to both get some background of of, of regional leaders but also uh a psychic glimpse of where you have journeyed in this past year and where you feel your work might change based on the global um, shift. Uh, So I'm going to start with Elizabeth Sobel because Elizabeth has a gigantic campus. So she is, you are the president and CEO of Saratoga Performing Arts Center. Um, Very so Saratoga is in the capital region. We, of course, are in Hudson and we're in that the beginning region. And what's exciting for those who have yet to explore the north or south is that in some ways we're very separate, but we're actually quite accessible to each other. And I would love for you to first just like paint a picture of the campus because it is, isn't it multiple thousands of acres, perhaps? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, uh, thank you. And first of all, thanks so much for this invitation. I, I'm so happy to be back with um, both of you. And it's, um, I will say that um, after, you know, many years, you know, living in, in Manhattan and working in the arts and entertainment uh, field uh, on the commercial side, the profit side, um, now I'm up here at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center and um, running for the first time and not for profit. And, um I had already fallen in love with with Saratoga in the capital region when I first came up here um, in 2016. But I have to say that that love was, or let's call it an infatuation, turned into truly deep love during during the pandemic. Because um, one of the things that we have here in Saratoga and the capital region in general, and and you know the Hudson River Valley also in general is this enveloping nature that we have such access to. And so um, the Saratoga Performing Arts Center is located in the Spa State Park, which has an extraordinary history. Um, The city of Saratoga, going back to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, one of the things that has brought um, people to Saratoga from the time when Native peoples came here on, uh, to, to, to the curative waters. There were these extraordinary healing streams and healing springs in in Saratoga. And so um, Saratoga has a reputation as having this kind of like healing properties, you know, both in the air and the waters and and, um, it's quite extraordinary. And so in 1935, then Governor Roosevelt um, put money forward during uh, to build this this campus um, on the state park land. Um, that was, it was WPA buildings, these 1935 Neo-Georgian brick campus um, with bathhouses and everything having to do with hydrotherapy. It was one of the first hydrotherapy spas, true European style hydrotherapy spas built in America. And so the park has always been a place, a kind of a destination place for people to come from all over the country, um, first for healing and then 1966, um, the, our amphitheater, the, the amphitheater of the Saratoga Performing Arts Center was built. Um, and so this big arts and culture piece landed in the park. And so the park is 2,400 acres. 
um, gorgeous woodlands and geysers and streams and these healing springs and now also many historic buildings from the 20s and 30s that came along with the development um, of this hydrotherapy, you know, sort of healing center. So it's really unusual and, and quite transcendent mix. And, um, you know, I like to talk about the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, what's so unique about it that's unlike any other summer festival or cultural center, uh, I was gonna say in North America, I think anywhere in the world, is this confluence, we like to call it the perfect confluence of man-made beauty and natural beauty, um, because you have not only this best-in-class 5,200-seat amphitheater and this extraordinary diverse natural setting, but now because SPAC has been here for so long, it's the summer home of the Philadelphia Orchestra and New York City Ballet and the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center and Fryhofer's Saratoga Jazz Festival, as well as um, 30 to 35 pop and rock shows brought by Live Nation every summer. So it's, it's, there's nothing like it. And it's adjacent to this amazing city of Saratoga Springs. We're 30 minutes from Lake George. We're 45 minutes from 6 million acres of Adirondack Parkland. And so it's, I feel like paradise is really the right word for it. Anyone listening who has not been there is now going to want to go there. And I'm so happy that you brought in the, the state park. I mean, of course, I knew in theory that that um, was part of the founding of that location. But when you paint the picture of the the joint um, natural beauty and cultural world, you know, when I'm asked all the time about why Hudson and why the Hudson Valley and when we started the Basilica and 2010, I always essentially say the same thing. And it's really based on the legacy of the American history of, of men conquering or settling or exploring. It's the, the, the Hudson River painters and the, the art movement and the modern day environmental movement that came to rally around the Hudson River um, in all of its uh, glory and its uh, man-made disasters that had so I always talk about those two being the synergy as to why um, Tony and I founded an art center in this geographic location because of that sort of it, you and I didn't even know that when I came to the area but you feel it yes. in the air you see the mountains you see the river and you feel that anyone who's ever come there wanted to in some way embody it or capture it you know and that's so very, very, you know, I think it's actually very representative of the entire corridor of the, of from the city up to Saratoga. And thanks for that painting the landscape. Cause I, I, I think it is uh, in the air and in the history and in the magic of why we're all gathering in this area. Well, and Maureen. Oh yeah. Maureen knows that I have tremendous Hudson envy. You know, so just <laughs> he does. Well, I, this have, one, I will I tell you that every time you say Hudson, he'll jump right down, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it is a little. You know, I do just city stuff. So no fighting. <laughs> oh yeah, really good cities. Yeah, but the. I mean, yeah, I. I. I feel like I want to explore. Saratoga feels like one of those yet to be explored um, gems of upstate for for me because we're more south and. Um, and although I'm from Montreal and I do that corridor all the time and I, and I see Saratoga, but there is this weird magnet of the New York city is the two hour and then you expand. Uh, but um, 
Yes. Well, we will meet somewhere in between or we'll be sure to come to each other's venues as soon as we're wildly open. I do have a date to come up there this summer, so I'm going to be there. But um, Maureen, you too have a Saratoga, although you uh, orbit between the two. You're down in the Catskill Hudson area, but you're also up in Saratoga. But so you are the executive director of the Upstate Alliance for the Creative Economy. And we met, I think I met both of you and around the same time, I guess, Maureen, you had been working on that study that formed ACE, the creative economy study. Mm -hmm. Uh, But eventually when the three of us uh, met in Albany um, and we were discussing in particular women in the creative economy, I suppose, but you and I, I mean, you really started with spearheading this idea of what is the creative economy and and its value. And tell me, geographically the areas you've been in the work you've done and, and also a little bit I feel like you're the other Saratoga person I always hear speaking about I'm up in Saratoga for I, you work so, with the group there yeah so I moved up here in 2004 which is such a long time ago I um was in New York City before that with entertainment careers like YouTube not at all like YouTube years were much more exciting but I had one nonetheless and uh, but um when I came up, I was really surprised. I was sort of parking my career in New York and I was saying goodbye to that whole, you know, I didn't, I didn't know, and you couldn't really back then have a career up here. I was an executive producer at Nickelodeon and they were like, uh, see ya, you know, and I was heading off into nowhere in upstate New York. And, um, I was really surprised at what I found here. It's it's amazing. And it made me back into the person I wanted to be, right? I, I wanted to create things here. Um, I think that's what ties the creative economy to those places that you guys just described, which are, it's so beautiful here. It's so free. It's so tied to water and nature that it was bringing back a part of me that I hadn't felt in a long time in New York City and in the industry, you know, that I was in. So when someone started talking about the economic impact of the arts, and it was just sort of like a conversation that had started, Richard Florida had started with the creative class conversation. When we started talking about that, I was like, oh, that exists here. You know, when I moved to Saratoga in 2004, it's a pretty thriving town. You know, it's, it's really not had many down, well, in the 70s, it had a downturn from what I understand, but it's a, it's a very thriving town with four seasons of activities and um and yet i had never heard of it you know basically never heard of it elizabeth you said the same thing right you, you know it just wasn't even from new york city it wasn't popping and yet when we started talking about the economic impact of the arts here and creative activity overall like not just performing arts which is something you would think of as the arts you know or museums or the kind of you know the arts and culture sector there was all this other stuff which is designers and agriculture, which um, turned into the craft brewing industries, you know, the things that are really popping and thriving. When we started quantifying it, we saw that it was the fourth largest employment sector in the capital region, which is shocking, right? We were not known as that, even to ourselves. And just starting to tell that story to ourselves and to each other, like, hey, you, you're you're driving the economy of Hudson. You, Elizabeth, they're driving this giant machine that's bringing people up and making people want to live here. You know, the reasons that the hospitals and and the stores and everything else is doing well is because of what creative people are doing here. When we started telling that story, we all recognized it as true. 
We know it was true. We just didn't have the numbers to, to, to put it all, the glue to put it all together. And so that's what was so exciting about talking about the creative economy. And the other thing it did was take the eight counties, which is the economic development region that, Alyssa, that uh, Melissa, you could tell us a lot about because you're on our regional economic development council. But that million people that we drive in those eight counties is actually like a magic number in terms of economic development. A million people is a lot of people, right? But we always saw each other as very separate. Like there were, there were no psychic or emotional connections between Hudson and Saratoga, let's say, you know, or even Saratoga or Hudson with Albany, you know, like they just weren't connected. And when we started to tell the narrative of like, wait, we have a million people, we have 10 amazing cities, we have lots of, you know, all of this amazing history and architecture and agriculture. When we told that story, we were really starting to kick into gear. You know, this million people mean something. These little towns, this little constellation of cities is so amazing. And so that's, I think, what where we've all gotten caught up in that narrative of like how each of us contributes to that. And I mean, each of us, like all 35,000 creative people are so vital to this place. And, and I don't think that we had just ever seen ourselves that way. We suffered from such low self-esteem that way. And so now we don't. You know, now we tell the story pretty proudly of, of what we offer and, and, and how we can help. And we're brought into big questions that, that of economic development or revitalization or diversity, all these things. You know, we're starting to call all those creative people into, the, into those conversations. And I know both of you, that happens to you all the time. You become part of the REDC. So you're called into like big economic development questions, right? Well, and that was all, yeah, and it, it's that question again, but like to have a voice, what does that mean? So like once we quantified all those things and obviously people from the arts who it starts with expression and have ex sharing an idea and I, or, 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 or beauty or whatever it is that art share and that you were talking about the low self-esteem, it's like artists in general have uh, not been valued by the giant industries and are often... Um, obviously very ripped off by the traditional structures of arts and culture and um, more in the performing arts world than in maybe the visual art world. But in general, uh, Basilica, for example, being an artist founded place, one of the center goals was to help advance independent artists and get them outside of the gigantic systems and support them outside of the gigantic systems. But it is interesting, like, well, you were describing you trying to collect all the voices it brought me to that next place of like, when you have all those voices collected, what is it that we're trying to do or, or, or represent? And, and to your point about me being invited to be on the REDC, the Regional Economic Development Council, it was because largely inspired by that conversation that the creative economy and all these panels began about five years ago. And it allowed me to specifically look at if I go up to Albany as an advocate for, I go, I, I call myself the advocate for a creative, but also green industries. So it's both the creative and then all the uh, regenerative, you know, the climate, climate catastrophe is my primary biggest uh, concern as a mother on the planet that I will never let go out of any conversation, but we will not, I see them as very connected in that it is underrepresented needs of the people essentially and and arts and and the planet need 
voices. So when I think about why I join those meetings in Albany and review any of their potential grants to support local initiatives, it is my goal to always be looking out for a creative sector. I mean, and that's what's so interesting about all these, you know, are we the creative economy? We are also the cultural sector. It's the entertainment industry, you know, within the system, it's who are we and what do we want to do with that? We know that even just in SPAC, you're the, you know, one of the mission simple things, just sharing beauty. We know that that, and we know that that is what, because one of the questions I had, it's like, it, it is what makes the world go round. It is our life force. It is our exchange or our serotonin, serotonin, but also our reason, our raison d'etre, like water, beauty, love, very basic things. And then because those are fairly sometimes taken for granted or sometimes seem as abstract, but you do actually have to fight for that space. And you do have to, in the way that I started seeing it is leverage it to be able to make change and leverage your spot at the table. And that's what's been so helpful with the work that ACE has done of being able to have those stats and walk into a meeting and say, yeah, of course, New York state is known or upstate, especially for government for healthcare. But did you know that right below that is everything each one of us individually is doing or, you know, a small art center like Basilica or a giant one like SPAC, those are likely very like-minded people who are trying to actually orbit around even just a cider. That is like joie de vivre. It is a life force. It is not a, you know, in many ways, a lot of us is like people in pleasure over profit. We're truly just enjoying life. And so that's what's been really interesting is to see how you start leveraging or needing to, you have to go into that system to say, we are worth this many jobs and this much money to then be able to say, I also think we need green energy and that art, art centers should be bailed out during COVID. You know, so it, it is kind of, I guess, why we're at the, the, at this conversation together is how maybe Elizabeth, you could speak during COVID or even when you arrived only a few years before COVID, how you saw SPAC acting as a player on the local political landscape. And even starting with the, the National Park in the 30s, that was an act, a political act, then lucky for you, created this beautiful space to eventually be an art center. But that's, it started with a protection from a political moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, all of these things are things that are, have been on my mind, you know, since I, um, you know, got to Saratoga. I, I mean, so, you know, I worked, my, my previous jobs, I, I ran a talent agency for, for IMG. So I, you know, I was working with artists, which is one of the great privileges of, of my life. Um, so many amazing artists, uh, performing artists I got to work with. But ultimately, my job or our job at IMG was to push, you know, push out tours all around the all around the world. Right. So even though my office was at Carnegie Tower right next to Carnegie Hall and I could leave the office and go hear a great concert. Essentially, my job was pushing people out there. Right. And then when I went to Universal and, and ran a, a new label for them, again, we were recording incredible music, but then we were pushing it out. And so I was kind of in this disembodied state, you know, I wasn't connecting with the people that I was, do, you know, doing all of this for, I was doing it on behalf of my artists, but 
you know, the community out there was this disembodied entity, right? And so when I left, um, when I left Universal, I, I frankly was planning to um, get out. I, I wasn't going to work anymore. I was going to really dedicate myself to my other love, which is nature. Uh, I've always been like a, a student of ethnobotany and plant medicine, and I was planning to go follow that path. Um, and and then I got this call, you know, about the job in Saratoga and little did I know, cause I'd never come to Saratoga all those years that I was working in the arts and entertainment field and sending artists up to SPAC. I had never come to Saratoga cause I had no clue what was here. Um, so then when I came up finally for the first interview and just there's kind of a magic spark hit me of like, this is this thing where man-made beauty and natural beauty overlap, right? So that was a kind of a, an epiphany. And so I guess, you know, in the time of COVID, um, you know, we, we had just redone our mission statement the previous December before COVID hit, right? Mm -hmm. our, our mission, when I came here, our mission was all about like ballet and orchestra on the amphitheater stage, blah, blah, blah. And I kept saying that that's the, manifestation of who we are but that is not who we are we are essentially this um, steward of the land and of this perfect confluence of man-made beauty and natural beauty and so when we headed into covid and we knew the amphitheater was going to be dark and started asking ourselves these existential questions like who and what is SPAC when the amphitheater stage is dark we went back to our new mission statement, which was saying, no, our job is to provide these transformational encounters with beauty for people in these. And why? Because two things, one, experiencing great beauty with other people connects you to other people and experiencing those transcendent experiences of natural beauty connects you to the earth and makes you care about the earth, right? And then, so those are two profound essential things about why we do what we do. And then there's another side to it, which is frankly, the science of why we love these experiences. You keep referring to serotonin and we, you know, science now tells us that the reason we feel so great in nature is that we're breathing in the molecules, the, you know, the chemical signals that the tree canopies are are sharing for informational and communication purposes. And those molecules, when we breathe them in, activate serotonin production in the brain. You know, same thing as when you're gardening, you're breathing in certain bacteria in, from the earth that activates serotonin. So, um, and we further know that states, you know, these serotonin induced states make us much more open to the cultivation of compassion and empathy. So when you add all of that stuff in together, it's sort of like bing, 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 like, a, you know, when the, the slot machine, it's like, that's it. Like, that's like, that's the slot machine, like just going crazy of like, those are all the things that we need to be doing right now, bringing people together in these communal experiences um, around all the arts, not just the performing arts, but reminding each other of how we're connected and how important these linking moments of shared human experience are to keep us sane and grounded and caring in a in a world that's spinning out of control in many ways and it's the most ancient way of communing with each other and with nature and if you just want you know any like 
creation of the planet or as the evolution of, of humans, it's, you know, our, our 24 hour music festival that we have is my ode to ancient ritual of just sitting in a circle for extended periods of time and observing sound and others. Uh, and it's, it's the oldest form of exchange prior, you know, before language even. And these are the kinds of, you know, not to mention the eternal, our planet and our sweet trees and, and the molecules that the stardust that made us. I mean, those are those that disconnect, that disembodiment that you were talking about resonates with me as well in that I too, even though I was out on the road prior to my Hudson world and traveling to these incredible communities around the globe performing and that moment of performance I always said was like my life force. When I erased that component of my life, not only just the playing of music, but the playing and the sharing, it really changed a lot for me. And I'd become a mother, which is my choice to get off the road and have a child. And instantly I started an art center because I couldn't even imagine how I would continue <laughs> living without that exchange, even though I wasn't on the stage doing it. And I, I um, very much appreciate everything and, and bringing it down to even just stardust and, and nature, because that is where, unfortunately, we know our culture has disconnected, is that it's not only because of urban development, but it is because of the corporate greed that has truly pumped uh, the worst chemicals into our environment for the last 100 years. And here we are um, trying to at least uh, to, to see that disconnect and to see what, what has happened to our, our natural world. And we are very blessed in upstate New York to have that amount of of trees to and mountains, um, mountain ranges to even consider uh, communing with. And I do think most people, no matter what your politics are in upstate New York, do appreciate that and do recognize that connection. And we are, we, um, we have that. And Maureen, how about, you know, I feel like you and I have never, we, we often have connected on these sort of like uh, act action moves of how do we quantify? How do we connect? How do we, network all the answers and going into the Elizabeth tree stardust land. How do you bring even maybe I could make it more personal of like what brought you as a human into studying film, working in the entertainment world, and then your escape to upstate New York when you decided to leave the big industry? Like where does that all sit in your in your landscape of who you are and why you fight for the voices of creative people in a region. Thank you for asking that. And Elizabeth, you just freaked me out a little bit because I never kind of put this together for me of how abstracted it is to sit in a big corporate building and make decisions for lots of people. I, I never, I never thought about it that way until you just said it. Um, Cause I was running, a website called nickjr.com. It's for parents and preschoolers. And it was the largest one in the world at that point. And so the numbers would start coming in, which is like the first time I used to be in publishing or film or all that stuff where you would see the numbers come in, but they were kind of not connected to people. The movies come in and box office numbers, right? Like big, gross, it's the gross, right? Um, but for the first time you could see how many people you were affecting and with the internet because of the way that the analytics work and such. And I was, a and we see the numbers roll in and we were, the decisions we were making were affecting 5 million people a month. And 
I'm just an idiot in a tower in an office. Like we're affecting children, two to five-year-olds. That was the target audience. And I started feeling deeply uncomfortable about that because I was also sitting in meetings with McDonald's and, and selling minivans and, you know, pumping out stuff to, to sell to these kids. And I had kids myself. And my kids ended up, weirdly enough, in the test market for Dora the Explorer. So they were being like monitored to see how their reactions would went so that they're, they were jumping and always hyper excited, which is not how a child should be in hyper excitement for hours. It's just not what they're supposed to be, right? And I was part of this machine and I was feeling really bad about it. I, I still have a good, I, I think it's beyond guilt. I have still have a terrible guilt for what happened. You know, we, when we started it, we just, we launched nickjr.com in 1999, I think, or 2000. And um, we were supposed to add to kids' screen time because of the business model. Um, we were, you know, Nickelodeon had a, a certain amount of screen time. Let's say that for two to five-year-olds, it was three or four hours a day. And the big corporate thing of everybody going to these meetings was do not cannibalize that screen time. You can't take a kid away from that TV screen. You have to add additional screen time to their life or you're ruining the cash cap. TV is the cash cap. So we had to not cannibalize, not count. I would lay in bed at night, like don't cannibalize the TV. So we would add, we were adding an hour two hours, now it's like double the amount of screen time in that short of time to a kid's life, a two to five year old's life. That was our business, that was my business mandate. And I feel crappy about that. So I left feeling really bad from the city. And when I came up here, some of it was just to spend time with my kids because I didn't see them. I had, two, I had a two year old at home and I didn't see her. And she wasn't talking and she wasn't thriving in daycare. And my life was just feeling bad. And so I left. I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I could not do that anymore. And so just to come up here and spend, you know, it's funny. Also, we used to spend lunch times in, um, at Speckle or at the state park and walk around the grounds. And I saw my first heron and I saw, you know, when we would pack up a lunch, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not ever going to go back to that city again. Just sort of, I think that the chance to affect an individual person, meet an individual person, like drive around and just ask to meet the director of this or that in a car, like to make sense of those numbers. You know, we knew there were 35,000 people out there, but if you don't get to meet them, what good does that do anymore? You don't want aggregate numbers. You want faces and stories. And so I think that that's why I got involved in the creative economy numbers. And once we all started meeting each other, this tapestry is super rich, right? It's not just the number 35,000 people. It's amazing individuals. And I mean, from a freelancer who would show up to our events to the to directors of giant organizations, everybody is so precious. And I never knew that about this, that number 5 million, right? I had no business influencing 5 million children. I will love to advocate for one person a living person who came out of their house and like tried to do something with their life or is trying like heroically to start a business or, or to express themselves or run a thing. Like I'll work till the end of the day for that person. Cause I feel really crappy about how I did it before. So.
Great answer. I knew there'd be something in there that was because in my notes about the three of us speaking, I had um, a note here about the the arc of the 20th to the 21st century and knowing that we all as humans grew up on um, in that pivot and change, but also as women in entertainment industry. And I had that in a note in the digitization of the world that's happened in that time. And I think it's a very particular uh, obviously a very extreme moment in time, but a very particular psychic emotional arc of individuals who watch that, especially people like what you were describing, which I'm sure Elizabeth and I in our music world also, you know, it was very different, but it certainly thank goodness, because I know what you mean by, I mean, the screen time is a pandemic death of the imagination and human experience of children. We, I mean, these people should be held accountable just like um, Exxon I mean, this is a, I have a nine-year-old daughter. We, we, we are so clear and adamant, but it is a slippery slope. Of, uh, and so I am not surprised that you as a mother, as a human coming from the old century into the new had a terrified feeling of when all that data started coming and all those test markets and all that um, would run to the hills. I mean, this is also, you know, happened in various other, you know, the back to the landers uh, movements happened for, for reasons around big industrial moments, which is obviously part of what was the birthplace of the Hudson River painters was the industrial moments of other, of other, other centuries that drove people away from these systems that abuse and, and extract um, for profit. So I, I guess it is a moment where we, you know, in the, in the digital realm that the music world went through affected me personally as well in terms of disembodiment and me wanting to start an independent art center that could have, musicians that don't have a label that don't have you know now it seems like everyone can be on itunes but i did watch that whole arc where the label said no we're not partnering with itunes and the artist got all ripped off and we paid as much towards a non-physical copy i would i i have to pay for a non-production of my album to be sold on itunes because of how corrupt all the business dealing was for artists and for people at that time and the the record executives that were having to live with that you know that conscious too and i'm sure that elizabeth you can maybe describe in your realm both as a say as a, a woman but also as a person in the industry of when that digital creepy realm started coming in <laughs> What did you see? I mean, well, and the pandemic using the digital realm, you know, it's like at the goddess, yeah, goddess it's, is new. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird, you know. It's like I um I left IMG, like I had never wanted to go to the dark side, as we always said, you know, to go to to the record company and particularly Universal. Um, and I also just as a woman in the business, I mean, IMG sports, there was not a bigger you know, vessel of testosterone on the face of the earth until I got to Universal. And it was even worse there. I was literally the only female label president in the whole global company. And so um, I, I was also there as digital downloads were actually on the way down and streaming had not yet ascended to the, to the place that it is now. So I was there in very dark days. I, I left IMG um, because of 
we got spun off and, and were acquired by some very dodgy folks, which by the way, there's a, a big billboard piece just came out a couple of weeks ago about the history of IMG. If you want to have a really, really? yeah, you should, okay. you should definitely check it out. Um, so at any rate, um, I think the, you know, on, so on top, of this kind of embodied, you know, impersonal pushing out and everything, I was dealing with the, the corporate culture. And, you know, when I got to, um, to Universal, the business unit that I inherited in order around which to create a new label was, you know, 80% men and 20% women. And of course, the 20% women were all assistant secretaries, you know, to attract the kind of artists a lot of cross genre kinds of artists. So there's like black violin who come from, you know, the organically mixed classic strings with the, you know, sort of the, the hip hop community they grew up in or Tiempo Libre who grew, grew up going to the Juilliard School of, of uh, Havana with, um, Latin, you know, Latin jazz and Cuban rhythms and everything. A, a lot of artists who were just mixing genres very naturally and very uniquely um, really wonderful artists, but also artists like, um, when Sting wanted to do something other than every, what he's known for, wanted to go off onto another um, more cross-genre kind of project, those albums would come out through us, you know. So it's a very eclectic hybrid um, label. And But what we found at the beginning, or what I found at the beginning, I thought going to Universal, I was going to have all this like, oh, major label juice, you know, to attract artists and everything. And the artists I was interested in, and I would go to them, they're like, hell no, I'm never going over to that beast, right? And so what we ended up doing was, um, first of all, the shift of male to female executives shifted over time. Um, I had an amazing uh, staff and some just powerhouse women that I always felt proud to, 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 to work side by side with. But we also um, just established a different kind of ethos. I doubt that world, word was ever even uttered at 1755 Broadway, um, but we really founded our label around an ethos, about artist-centric ethos. And so I would make the case to these artists that what we were doing was offering a label of caring, an ethos, an artist-centric label, but with the juice of Universal behind us, you know? And, um, that's kind of how I've approached things. And, you know, it's like IMG too was like a big, strong testosterone fueled powerhouse. And yet we were able to do what we did at IMG and had an amazing 20 year run uh, before we were spun off, um, it, you know, because the, the division we ran was again, ethos-based, you know, care-based dialogue, helping artists reveal and manifest who they wanted to be rather than like cha-ching, 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 you know? And so finding that balance of how to harness and use the power and the resources of that world with the ideals and the, um, the creativity of artists and give them a home where you're kind of providing a balance for them, you know? So that's, that's really what, um, how I've always tried to work. I mean, I'll give you an example of it at SPAC. When I came to SPAC, our um, 50 year old campus had never really had any 
structural improvements or capital, you know, like well thought through capital improvements. And what I inherited was it was a beautiful amphitheater, but it is 50 years old. And the campus in the middle with all the like restrooms and concessions and all of these sorts of things were horrific. And nobody, nobody, I came with fresh eyes. I was like, what in the world is that doing with all this hideousness in the center? And everybody had been inured to it. So, um, you know, there are a lot of people who think Live Nation or like the big bad like Live Nation. There's certainly, you know, there's reasons why people think that. But our partnership with the local Live Nation has really flourished and there's a lot of balance. And we were able, thanks to the REDC and a grant we got through, through um, the REDC, to create a new facility right in the center of our campus that honors our history and the aesthetics and the park-like um, you know, the park environment. But we were able to do that because we got $8 million from Live Nation to put with the money we got with the RADC to put in the middle. So I really do, you know, I, I by nature, the, 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 you know, the sort of cons the greed that you're talking about is definitely a, a malevolent force in our world on so many levels. And yet I also believe in the ability in the right moment and in the right times to find ways to harness that for the good of what we're doing. It's not easy and it's not always the right thing, but I, I, I live with an eternal kind of hope that we can, mm -hmm. you know, we can harness some of it for, for, the, for the good to help us do what we're trying to do. Agreed. And you're doing a great job in all those descriptions is with the label. And of course, and that's back to that idea of leveraging. Anyhow, it's the, yes. like, we want to, I don't want to exploit all the artists and farmer, farm and flea market vendors. But if I have to go with a big sort of like, like voice to Albany to say, I think you should support X, Y, Z. That's that idea. You're not exploiting it. You're leveraging the power. And then on the flip side, you can, you have to work within the system. I personally am raised by a, a radical politician. My father ran downtown Montreal on and off for years. And his entire motto was, I don't trust those assholes to do it. I'm going to fight for the people. So I was raised by a guy who said, you can't, you have to get into the system to change it, to bring the voices of the people into the system. So I definitely, yeah. As much as I, while I was on, you know, now essentially Universal owns everything. My whole catalog, anything I've ever played on is somehow Universal, but it was Geffen, it was you know, Capital, it was all these other. But um, I, while in that last, I feel like the last decadent golden years of the music industry where like everyone in the alternative world was being assigned and having these budgets to do all these amazing things, I felt similar in that I felt, gross that we were in this insane machine but i also felt i made a promise to myself that i would spend leverage for the rest of my life that voice and opportunity i was given to continue the good conversations and support the good fight the good people the good independent voices that need so i am completely you know i support your work <laughs> in what you're doing it's back in that idea of just live nation i guess i didn't realize that that they paid for the the part of that history and that preserving history and storytelling is essential to understand how we're going to build a future so here we are it's 2021 spring is coming 
Basilica is still practically closed. We're still focusing on offsite and outdoors. So we're doing drive-in movie theater. We're doing our music festival in the fall at PS21 Chatham because it's an outdoor pavilion. So we are still not recovered. We're waiting for the shuttered venues grant to see if we're going to be able to come back beautifully in 2022. So that's spring from my place. And I'm going to ask you to describe in each of your realms of the what spring, what is your forward movements with your individual projects and how has this year changed you in the, the way that you work and in, in the location that you work? And uh, that's sort of, that's, um, I'd love to start with Maureen. <laughs> so what ACE did best, I think. Um, and the thing that we was convened every month in a different location in a completely different style every month for years, for like four or five years. So in February of 2020, we gathered 350 people at this great um, black owned design firm called Collective Effort in Troy. 350 people on a Tuesday night had this kicking event. And then Gone. No more events, right? We were doing that every month forever. And so it ended. We couldn't do anything. So we decided to um, start putting our, we didn't want to do Zoom events because if you remember way back to last month, there were too many of them. I was on Zoom like eight hours a day. Really weird, you know? So we decided that's not what we didn't want to add any more Zoom calls. So we decided to go with back into written communications. We had a newsletter, it was a way to connect with people. And you know what was super cool about the analytics, like being able to see into people's behavior so much is that people started reading again. We were having read times and you, cause you can see how long each person reads each article, right? It's creepy, I'm not saying it's not, but in the aggregate, we could say, we could see that people were reading our articles. They were spending 10 minutes on them, 15 minutes. That's weird, right? Like. People didn't read the the month before. You couldn't got, have gotten someone to read something for a minute. You know, there's just people's behavior started changing. And we thought, let's go with that. Let's write more. Let's see things. And we started a branding project called Cap and Y, which is a millennial centric brand for the capital region. We started producing content for that and sort of following the story. And we could really find the analytics to see what pieces pop. What do people want to hear more of? We got much more of a dialogue going with our audience, you know, using written communications. And it was felt very old fashioned in a new fashioned way, you know, that we could deliver it in a different way. But people were reading again. We had a piece, we did a um, black owned business list uh, where we found and worked with other people to find um, and give a list of 250 black owned businesses. And it reached ultimately almost 50,000 people in the capital region, like an enormous amount of people who live here were able to be affected by that list. And it was just sort of the first time we felt, again, um, the ability to connect to people that we were breaking through with the message. So we got much more about written communications, but the thing that we'll be able to do this spring and we're working with Elizabeth on it. Um, if we, it, and it's just in its planning stages, so don't quote us. But we're um, going to do a DJs Under the Stars event where um, with the DJ who moved up here, she's done W Hotels worldwide. She was their resident DJ for months in the Maldives, like this 
very glamorous life. So she's going to be one of our DJs as well as Colton the Maker, who's from Hudson, and True Master, who's one of the best DJs from our region. Like, start to convene again. We're doing a tour of Foreland. We're trying everything again. They're going to be smaller than they were before um, in a more controlled way, but just start gathering again because I want to gather again. You know, it's so nice to see you guys. Can you imagine? Like, I'm going to get to see you in person sometime. But it'll be so it'll be so nice to get back to those, get out of the aggregate of who's, you know, the little analytics version of who's reading and who's there and see their faces. I, I just can't wait. And that's sort of always been the heart of the project that I run and um, or we run the people I run it with. And I can't wait. I just absolutely cannot wait. That's okay, so there will be gatherings. There will be gatherings. Confident that yeah, summer and into cross our fingers for everyone, and we will have sustained gathering. Yeah. And um, Spec did have events throughout COVID, right? You did end up doing all the. I mean, you were probably one of the performing arts centers with the bandwidth to to jump through those hoops, which a lot of obviously smaller people, we just closed and we couldn't even imagine how to comply. But tell us a bit about how, I mean, how many people, how many events yeah. did you have in 2020? So, so that new campus facility that I mentioned, which is called the Pines, um, gave us, I mean, it was providential. I mean, it, it just, you know, it was extraordinary that, you know, we started demolition fall of October, uh, fall of 2019. And despite construction stops and bans and all that kind of stuff during COVID, we actually, the buildings were done by June of, seven, of 2020. So what it gave us was a brand new covered pavilion right in the middle of the campus, a beautiful 2000 square foot terrace that's up above the tree line and looking down onto the amphitheater. So it gave us these very intimate indoor outdoor spaces that we then, you know, from the summer on, you know, there were the 50 person limit gathering guidelines um, and no live performance was possible. So we really started asking ourselves, um, you know, what can we be doing to serve art, artists and the community? And what was so beautiful about it is that these spaces gave us the opportunity to do that. So what we did was we, um, you know, there were obviously a lot of, um, uh, practitioner like yoga and meditation, Tai Chi practitioners, if you want to talk about healing and our commitment to the healing arts, um, we made these spaces available to practitioners so that we, we created the, the COVID protocols and the structure for people to be able to enter safely, be spaced safely and all of that. And so we provided these spaces and these protocols and all the operational side to these practitioners so they could come in and have their classes 50 people at a time. And so we had, every week we had eight or 10 classes of you know varying types of um, healing arts classes. All the proceeds went to the practitioners so that they had a source of income, which they were all, you know, it was very, very tough. And then we had art classes and drumming and dance classes and, film nights and we also launched and this is something very very dear to my heart is a culinary arts program again with an ethos the ethos of culinary arts around sustainability socially conscious cultivation and consumption 
and again, giving people that fundamental connection to each other through through the most essential thing, you know, food. So, um, so we had over 200 events, 50 people at a time, 10,000 people through the gates from July to December, which was astonishing. Um, and it also, um, you know, the amphitheater is both a blessing and a curse to a certain degree because it's 5,200 seats and then room for another 20,000 on the lawn. And so it limits what you can do. You're, I'm stuck with this mural size canvas, you know, it's very hard to do anything in miniature. And what last year did was give us this opportunity to create intimate moments with our, you know, community. Um, and, and that's something that's going to guide us into the future. Obviously, everybody's, you know, raring to get back to the shows on the amphitheater stage and all that sort of stuff. But we now know that there's a hunger for these other things. And we now have a blueprint for how to make that an integral part of who we are going forward around culinary arts, healing arts, literary arts, and all these things that people didn't really think of um, SPAC for the, those aspects of the arts. So that was last year. And um, this year, needless to say, the guidelines for our size venue, the 2,500 plus fixed seating you know, uh, venues have been, it's every day been something different and trying to plan ahead based on guidance given today. You know, it's, it's been a nightmare, frankly. Um, it's, but we've been doing the best we can to, you know, create a season of not normalcy, but we made a commitment last year to the fact that we would one way or another have our resident companies back with us this year. And in fact, we do. Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center is doing their season at Pitney Farm, Pitney Meadows Community Farm in an outdoor greenhouse, the High Tunnel. Um, and New York City Ballet obviously couldn't come with a troop of 200 up here because of social distancing, the fact that they hadn't danced in 18 months. So they're coming up with a stripped down uh, week called uh, New York City Ballet on and off the stage, troop of 25. It's gonna be in the amphitheater, but it's gonna be a real behind the scenes look at what, what those ballets are and why. And, and um, I'm really excited about that. The Jazz Fest will be back. Again, all these things not looking or feeling like they would have in the past because we're at reduced capacities, socially distanced seating, um, and then we just announced the orchestra will be back in August again, socially distanced, you know. Um, and then Live Nation are doing Trey Anastasia rather than doing like Fish, which, you know, would be its own thing right now. They're doing Trey Anastasio in a, an acoustic show three nights in June, socially distanced, 20% capacity. So things are happening, but they're happening in very you know, reimagined ways. Um, and it's a challenge because we're trying to, um, you know, there's now this possibility that if you want to designate your venue as only vaccinated can come to your events, then you all, you know, you don't have to socially distance or do mask wearing and everything. And that's been a real philosophical challenge for us because you know, the track can decide to do that, you know, but we're a, a not-for-profit and we we live by the, the generosity of the community and we serve the community. And as much as I would love to see everybody get vaccinated, we don't feel that we can discriminate against people who, for whatever reason, 
aren't vaccinated. And so trying to find a way to create a welcoming, safe environment for the full range of potential attendees from those who are already vaccinated, but still want to wear their mask and socially distance to the other extreme of people who never wore a mask and don't intend to get vaccinated. How do you create that environment, allowing thousands of people to come through your gates and be able to maintain that and enforce it? I hate that word. So those are our biggest challenges right now. Um, the programming and our partner, our resident partners have been amazing in their flexibility and creativity, but now it's just the operational thing that it is just a, a, a real constant um, weight on our shoulders about how, how we're going to pull all this off. So Yeah, and it is the, um, yeah, it's that scale that you work at, which is very uh, exciting to hear what the stripped down 10,000 season looked like and felt like is it in some ways that brings you down to earth as well as the in reminding like the intimate local because that makes you that what you experienced last year was not a destination event but a local exactly. venue and that's a very different um existence that, and i would from what you just said i would imagine that then even though you're doing this like dance between enforcement and and giant crowds and uh, is that you probably are coming out the other side with this exciting foundation of this new local um, program and community that will be in some ways, like when you left the city to come upstate, could be more of an anchor and a connector to all that, that uh, you are as a human and as an, a, a president of a giant location, but you, that it probably will grow even nearer and dearer to your heart, that, that local version. And that's the program that if you ever want to collaborate with Basilica Hudson, I'm here to collaborate. Oh, come on. <laughs> what about if you want to do something this summer where you're looking for an other outdoor, you know, spaces, we absolutely should do that. I, I would, I would love it. So. Thank you. Yes. Cause I know we did. Um, yeah. We, we planted that seed when you first arrived and we first shared a panel talk and now yeah. we've uh, learned more about each other as, as humans and in, in the geography. And I, I can't believe I I've never been to the hot, to the Springs, to the actual Saratoga Springs. Do you, now that you live there, is that part of your regular? Yeah world i mean that must have been closed during a lot of covid well actually so the springs themselves have stayed open and there is a place like right behind spac you can walk down go through our back gates and go down a hill into something called the vale of springs <laughs> and in the vale of springs are these beautiful springs with gorgeous names and each one of them has a different chemical makeup i mean you have to like in the 30s, and this was before antibiotics, each spring had a different, like one, one might be very high in phosphorus and one might be high in sulfur and one even has lithium and there's a, you know, there's like magnesium, whatever. And so doctors who specialized in this kind of hydrotherapy would prescribe the taking of per a particular water from a particular spring to heal your whatever condition, you know, and on, so, so those springs were always open and the park was always open. And this the park was an unbelievable refuge for people um, of Saratoga during the pandemic. 
And then the spa itself, the Roosevelt Spa, where the waters are piped in and you, you know, have your sort of warm baths in the mineral waters, that reopened, I want to say the summer, they, they very limited capacity, but they were open early on. And so the park was a refuge. It was a magnet. It, it was just everybody talked about how, how deeply they relished and cherished the park during the pandemic even more more than they yep. even do in regular times. So so that sounds like a transformation too for your community, you know, for the local forged relationship between the natural world and the people and and an art center at the center of it. Yeah, I yeah. think, you know, one of the things that like when I first moved here, it blew me away and it gets back to that disembodied thing. It's just like literally the city, because it's literally like a, a mile and a half from the spat grounds there, you can feel this palpable like SPAC is part of the city's psyche and the and SPAC psyche that we share DNA, right? Or psychic DNA, you know, and you can actually feel this kind of connective tissue, you know, between the organization. I mean, also like, you know, go back to trees, the Michael Reisel network, you know, that's under our feet. It feels like there is this kind of just interwoven thing that goes on in Saratoga. It's really hard. I know Saratoga, I mean, don't, Maureen, yes, no. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, it does in Saratoga, but like statistically that's borne out in rural areas who have, I'll turn it back into the nerdy part, but rural areas that have a higher percentage of arts jobs have higher percentage of overall jobs. Like it affect, you know, that thing that you're saying that, there, it, that, it, that this artistic and creative activity affects the town around it, it's true, it does. And so when we have this rural crisis, you know, because so much of rural areas have um, suffered hardest from, you know, in COVID, especially like those late waves of COVID, um, that the arts are the answer. Creative activity it was the answer in the post Great Recession. Those areas with higher percentage of arts jobs were bounced back faster during um, post recession. Like these are the answers to the post COVID world. Um, we've seen it time and time again, but this is something that, yeah, they, they do form each other and they do affect the next town over. You know, they do affect everything around it. Like in Hudson, I live in Catskill, which is the next town over. You can feel it spread in the best of ways. You know, so we all do affect each other that way. But it starts with that creative impulse. You know, if someone's feeling it, the next person's going to feel it. So This is where we might transcend to the end, but where when you're describing the, you know, it makes a community happy, makes it thrives and helps them thrive. It's, I always come back to the, the spiritual component of music and arts. And uh, I, with all respect to any organized practice in religion or in spirituality, is that in the secular modern world, the loss of the church and loss of uh, a more sort of standard religion to rally around uh, we have lost a lot of spiritual centers to our communities. And uh, to note, my art center is called Basilica Hudson, which is obviously pre-churches. Pre Basilicas were really just community gathering centers. The basilica structures in the 
Byzantine era of Italian architecture was just where they had their markets, where they had their gathering time. And, um, and that architecture prevailed into strangely industrial development. And our factory is based on a similar architecture to what churches, to what community centers were. And in all of these incredible systems lie the same questions and answers and needs. Uh, but I do think that the 21st century and the globalization uh, and digitization of things, the question is, what is our spiritual center? And um, that is, in my opinion, always the arts and we can transcend any political or uh, spiritual practice in the observation of experiencing shared beauty, shared expression. And that is our answer. And here we are <laughs> rallying around it, conversing in it. And, um, and it comes down to everything, arts and schools, you know, taking the art out of school, no good. That's not a happy child. You can't, you know, and, and, and then back to my final weaving of this conversation is that when we talk about bringing our voice to the table, you know, church and state and the endless religious wars around the globe, there has always been a voice of a spiritual center but the question has been, you know, the abuse of power around a spiritual voice. And we are a, a collective group of people trying to bring a spiritual voice without any specific power, reach, or control. We're actually trying to, maybe we're hippies. Here we are. But, um, <laughs> but it's been lovely. Don't tell my board you said that. <laughs> <laughs> do they, they know you're talking about tree communication so they I think do they do they, yeah they they definitely do they they look away and then they yeah no but you have a strong backbone in um in uh in budgets and in big corporate understanding of things so uh, it's an important hybrid so they made the right decision to hire a woman like you and you are you know maureen you're a alone will force. I know you have people to help you, but I know that you carry a lot of this alone in your just commitment to who you are as a person and to what makes you happy to see the world be. And we are, we are very lucky to be in each other's midst. And I will look forward to seeing you under some stars or in some communal gathering and look forward to continued collaboration. We will find ways to work together again. And I, I wish you both well in the hard work that you do and uh and we're very lucky to be alive and have the um the upstate new york nature to to hold us Truly. thank you, you so much you. So, <laughs> that was so great to see you well, yes we'll be in touch everyone bye bye thank you for listening and to learn more about basilica hudson head to our website basilicahudson.org where you can see upcoming events sign up for our newsletter you can also sign up for a Patreon to get early access to podcast episodes, discounted tickets, exclusive playlists, and more. But be sure to follow us on social media at Basilica Hudson on all platforms. Take care, listen well, and hope to see you at the factory soon.